0: Good morning everybody. I'm gonna take this little lull as an opportunity to interrupt and welcome you to the last Sunday of the year for us, the last worship service we'll have on a Sunday. We have one on Saturday, remember, but my name is Brian Marcioni and as always I'm I'm super excited and honored to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. And we're continuing our Advent series. We're in the fourth week of Advent, and we're reading the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke that lead up to Jesus' birth. And so today we're gonna look at the end of chapter one in Luke's Gospel. So if you're able, please stand and let's read God's Word. We're gonna start in verse fifty-seven. And go all the way through to verse 80. A little bit of a longer passage today. But listen carefully with me to what God's word says in Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day... His mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Amen. You can have a seat. So if you've read the first few chapters of Luke, you've probably noticed a pattern so far that we've seen. There are these parallel accounts in the early chapters of Luke, parallel accounts of two miraculous births working side by side one another. First, John the Baptist's birth is, uh, is announced to Zechariah, it's foretold, and then next, Jesus' birth is foretold to Mary. Then you have John's birth. And then this coming Saturday, we'll talk about Jesus' birth. We'll celebrate that. And of course, there's nothing accidental about this. And if you look closely, you see that just as John the Baptist in his adult ministry is preparing the way for somebody greater than himself, he's preparing the way for the Lord, for Jesus, the narrative here in the opening chapters of Luke is doing the same thing. It's building up to the greater birth, And we see an amazing, miraculous birth foretold and fulfilled with John. But a greater, even more miraculous and amazing birth foretold and fulfilled with Jesus. And Jesus' story is greater than John's. I mean, the angels tell Zechariah that John will, will lead people back to God. But John doesn't believe. The angels tell Mary that Jesus will reign over his people and have an everlasting kingdom, something greater. And Mary believes. Mary's story is greater than Zechariah's. There's more detail. There's more length and attention given to Jesus's birth and even to his childhood. It gets a whole chapter. Elizabeth is old and conceives. Mary is a virgin and conceives. It's a bigger miracle. Jesus's birth even gets an angelic announcement right? In the field to the shepherds. It's ironic though. It's unexpected. I mean, who would you expect to believe a prophecy about a miraculous birth? A priest or just a regular common woman with no title? And remember also, this is a very patriarchal society back then, right? And men were held in much higher regard than women. And you even see that in our text today, this annoying little thing, like the mother saying, hey, no, his name is John. Well, let's check with the father. What does Zechariah have to say, right? That'll be the final word on things. You can see that patriarchal bent. And yet, the greater one is it's announced to, to marry to a woman and born of her. John is born in his hometown, very likely, likely at home. Jesus is born under duress in a manger away from home. I mean, if I told you the next president of the United States was going to be born, who would you think it is? The the son of a senator or the son of a blue-collar worker? And there's a similar sense to this. Zechariah, the priest. Yet, Jesus' birth is greater. And these parallel passages show Jesus' birth is simultaneously more exalted, miraculous, and important, but also humbler and in greater contrast to what readers might expect at the time. And so Luke is setting the readers up. He's setting us up. Someone great is coming, an amazing, exalted, awesome king who will save us. But it's not going to be quite in the way the original readers might expect. So what's the point, though? I mean, why is Luke building things up? Why is there this crescendo to Jesus? And we know the answer, right? Well, there's big expectation. There's this crescendo. There's this exaltation of Jesus because it's Jesus, right? He's the son of God. He's going to save us from our sins, He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to die a sinner's death. He's going to take our punishment so we can receive his reward, right? Of course, Luke is building to something. He's building to the thing, the one, to Jesus, God in the flesh. I and mean, if Christianity is about anything, it's about Jesus Christ, right? Of course, this is right. But we're, we're missing something. We're forgetting something. And you probably know I'm trying to trick you because we've already established that things are a little bit unexpected or perhaps neglected or forgotten in the story. Maybe afterthought is a better term. But God is revealing himself here in increasingly miraculous and arresting ways that will culminate with God himself becoming one of us in Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of God and his character and who he is. Why? Why is he doing that? Well, let's look at another pattern that we see in Luke's gospel. So last week, uh, Pierce showed us Mary's response to her pregnancy when she visited Elizabeth. Reread that text, and what is Mary's song, the Magnificat, her, her poem that she sings? It's worship. It's worship. It's praise to God. What's the first thing she sings in verse 46? My soul glorifies the Lord. Today, we see Zechariah. The second he's able to speak again, what does he do? He praises God. He worships. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose, and he began to speak, praising God. Next week, what's going to happen? bigger, ultimate revelation of God, Jesus, God himself in the flesh, Angels are gonna appear to shepherds in the field and worship glory to God in the highest. The shepherds are going to go see Jesus and they're going to worship. Jesus is gonna go get circumcised and Simeon's going to worship. The prophetess Anna is going to worship. It's a pattern of worship. Revelation of God, worship. Revelation of God, worship. And this, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate why that I think we often neglect or forget. It's like, oh, oh yeah. Because we tend to emphasize Jesus coming to save us and and rescue us. He's going to save us from our sins. He's going to provide comfort in our troubles, uh, guide us and help us with decisions. Amen, yes, amen. But what's the point of all that? Why is God doing these things? Well, yes, of course it's because he loves us. Of course it's because he wants to renew us and redeem us. But why? For what? Why does he want to do all that? For worship. To worship him. Worship is the end game. We spend lots of time talking about what we're saved from, but not much time talking about what we're saved to. We're saved from sin and death, amen. Saved from our addictions, our brokenness, our self-defeating tendencies, amen, yes. But to what? To holiness, saved to worship. We reread uh, verses 68 through 75 here in Zechariah's song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his covenant and oath his swore to our Father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. For what? For the purpose of worshiping him. So let me stop because, I mean, at least if I'm honest with myself, right? This is kind of, when I think of worship, it's almost disappointing, right? This, that's the end game. It's worship. Right? It sounds boring, to be honest with you. And that's just because I've narrowed the word worship too much. And I think our culture has done that. Right now, if I said, hey, let's, let's worship, what, what would you expect? You'd expect Christopher to come up here and we're going to stand up and we're going to sing, right? That's what worship is. It's, it's singing. And amen, that is one form, but there's more to it. There's a lot more to worship, right? And you see, worship is what naturally happens in human beings when something captures their heart. I mean, the word itself comes from this old English word, worth-ship. worth-ship. it's the status, the quality or condition of worthiness. And when we worship, we are responding to the worth of something or someone, it's value or it's goodness. Worship's a, a really big tent. It's not just singing. It includes all the ways our hearts react, all the ways we are stirred when something captures our hearts. And this is, this is really good news, actually, because I, you know, I could spend a lot of time picking apart what worship is and how we do it and, and all of that. But practically speaking, I don't have to. I don't have to. Because we already know how to do it. We already know how to do it. We do it all the time. Worship comes to us as naturally as breathing. You don't need to teach anybody how to worship. Every time somebody perceives something, every time we see something, we perceive it as worthy, as excellent or attractive or praiseworthy, every time something captures our heart from a very early age, we're inclined to worship. And we see uh, a great athlete or musician. I mean, right now Lionel Messi's playing his last game, right? Thank you for pretending to pay attention (laughs) to what I'm saying while you check your phone, pretending that you're praying. I'm on, I'm on to you. But you, you see that, right? And what, what do you do? What stirs in your heart? It's worship. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Look at him. Look at that ability. He just kicked that ball on a rope and it bent. I mean, it's, he's amazing. What an amazing athlete. Right? That's worship stirring up in you something praiseworthy, something wonderful. You know, while we're sharing, let me, let me share something deep deep in Marcioni's heart. But, you know, have you seen the Star Wars, you know, Rogue One? Yeah. So at the end of the end of that, right? And when I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s, and so, you know, my best Halloween costume for all time was Darth Vader, corresponding with the release of Empire Strikes Back in 1980. So I was six years old, and so I've been kind of a Darth Vader person for my entire life. And there, that, at the end of that movie, who's seen that? Someone raise your hand. All right, okay, so I'm, this is a terrible illustration because it's only connecting with like a quarter of you. But I'm, I'm going for it because we're sharing, right? So at, the end, at the end of Rogue One, right, there's this scene where Darth Vader, who, who's just emergent, right, as this super villain, and he, he gets into this ship and he's going to try and capture some precious information. And it's, it's, the, the screen goes dark, right, and all you see is this red lightsaber. Come up, right? And then there's all these guys who are going to fight him, and he just annihilates the place. He's just wielding tremendous power. It is the, like my, I had, my eyes were wet. It was just this scene that was like, oh, my goodness, right? But, and, and we laugh. It's kind of like funny, like he's a villain. It's a movie. You know, I was in my 40s. You, like There's plenty of opportunity for humor in that, right? But something very real was going in my heart. What was I doing? I was responding to someone wielding awesome power. Right? When we see, when we cheer in a superhero movie, when the superhero comes down, it lays the smack down on the villains and wins, what is rising up in our hearts? It's worship, it's, it's natural. When you climb a mountain and you, you, just see the staggering beauty of a valley opening up before you. What is rising up in your heart? It's worship. Experiences, even things that, you know, we typically think of as, as wrong, or even we think of like power or money, or even if you're narcissistic and it's yourself, you're responding to something attractive, something beautiful or praiseworthy, and naturally you're inclined to worship. Your heart is it's captured by it. It's captivated by it. And when I met my wife, Catherine, and what happened? She caught my heart. And so I thought about her a lot. I, I honored her. I brought her gifts. I praised her. If I were, you know, Sean Richmond or Brendan Hollingsworth, I would probably would have sang to her. <laughs> there... You know, that, those are the, by the, the only two data points I have in my life that people actually do that, like sing to their, to, in courtship. Um, I knew, you know, it happened, but I actually witnessed it with, with Sean and Brendan. I'm like, wow, people actually singing to their wives. If I sang to my wife, I wouldn't be married right now. We would, <laughs> we'd, we'd have, the courtship would have just fallen flat right there. Okay, Right? But we praise her. I wrote her love letters and notes. Ultimately, I gave my life to her. That's a worshipful type of thing, that direction, right? And we just we just do this as naturally as breathing we all do when we see something that catches our heart. We worship naturally all the time and we absolutely cannot turn it off. You know, it's almost as if it's almost as if the human race was created for worship. it's almost as if we were made for the very purpose of pointing to and glorifying and proclaiming the worth of someone or something. If I didn't know any better, I'd suspect that we were created in the image of God, right, and made to reflect him and point to him and draw others into him and to worship him. And this is good news but it's also bad news because our worship is distorted. It's, it's broken. It limps along. We could say that we tend to worship the wrong things. And in a way, that's right. But it's actually deeper than that. I think what's really going on is that our worship isn't big enough. You know, it, it stops too soon. We see something beautiful or praiseworthy, but that thing or person or feeling is where we stop. That's the stopping point. It's like looking at a, a beautiful painting and praising the painting or the frame rather than the artist. I see beauty in my wife, and she becomes the ultimate thing for me, the ultimate beauty. And I worship her beauty, rather than the author of beauty. It stops short. And my wife's beauty, the beauty of a painting, the beauty of a mountain range, it's just a a shadow. It's just a pointer upwards to the ultimate beauty in God. It's God's hey, look, I'm I'm even better. And this is true of, of everything we worship. Everything we worship that stirs in us, that captures our heart, it's just a shadow of what we long for in God anyway. Pick, just pick something. Pick something that you delight in, something that you seek out, something that is wonderful, that has your heart. What's underneath it? Do you like delight in beauty? That's God, he's more beautiful. He invented beauty. Do you delight in comfort or security or being loved or provision, a good meal, feeling that satisfaction? That's God. Do you delight in seeing justice? That's God. You long for God's justice. Do you delight in the, the staggering complexity and organization of nature? That's God. He thought of that. Do you delight in seeing someone with awesome power, wield it for good. That's God. We could do this all day with anything. But our problem is that we stop short and we worship the created instead of the creator. And when we do that, we wind up empty because the created thing or experience or person or whatever that we're worshiping, it's not big enough. It can't give us what God can. It's not, it's not big enough. And so the good news to that bad news that we see in this text and and in all scripture is that God is out to write this. He's out to fix this. He frees us to worship him. Verses 74 and 75. To enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We are saved. We are redeemed. We are rescued to worship God. You even see it in miniature here in Zechariah's story. He's freed from his speechlessness and he worships. Isn't that interesting? He sins in disbelief. He faces a consequence because of that sin, but later he's freed from it and worships. God's mercy liberates us to worship him freely. He rescues us to enable him to, serve, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And that, you know, in the, the translation here, that word serve, it occurs 21 times in the New Testament, and it's often used hand in hand with worship. There's another word for worship, and it will usually say like, you know, serve in worship, or it'll just say this, this word serve. It's in the same context as other words for worship. And just think about it. I mean, what does it mean to serve God? What what exactly does he need? He he doesn't need anything. We don't wait on him or get him things or anything like that. We serve by worshiping through obeying him. And I, I find it interesting that serve and worship are often so close to one another in the Bible because you serve the thing that you worship the thing that's captured your heart when you worship something, you're gonna order your life around it in pursuit of it. And so the purpose of salvation is holiness and worship. We're saved from our sin and judgment, from our enemies, and to holiness, to peace and worship. We're saved to worship God. What are we going to do when we get to heaven? Have we get a glimpse of it? Read Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 20. Daniel 7, this vision of the Son of Man. Isaiah 6, angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. What's everybody doing in heaven? They're worshiping God. They're delighting in him. We're saved to worship God. This is the end game for us. This is what we were made for. This is why worshiping God, and especially in a group of people like we are today, it's making God's kingdom manifest on here on earth. It's pushing back the darkness. This is the way things are supposed to be. Different tribes and tongues and nations in one voice, worshiping God, proclaiming his worth. Acting like God, loving one another as God loves us, doing the things that God does. This is just a a glimpse of what we were made for, a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And so we can, we can do this. We can worship at just every moment of our lives. We, we can make everything, everything. How, how do I emphasize this more strongly? Everything, worship. And I'm actually indebted to to Sean. Uh, For years ago, we were talking about worship, and I was talking about how I struggle with it a lot when I come here on Sundays. Sometimes when I'm not drumming, I'm out there, and it's, it's tough for me to engage. And he taught me to connect the dots, right? So what amazes you? What do you delight in? What makes your heart sing? Connect those dots upwards to God. He's the source of that, He's the thing that you're after in that. So, you know, I love to play the drums, and I, I, it's wonderful. I, I, I enjoy it, it brings me great pleasure. Connect. Thank you, Lord. What a gift to be able to share music with friends and you know, to have studied and developed the skill and to use my body in this creative way. Thank you, God. I love to to run. I'm a runner. And I, I worship, Lord, this is so wonderful that the body you've given me that can do these things. I worship you. Thank you for this beautiful day that I'm free and I can choose to go outside, that I have sneakers and clothes and I can run and I can do this. Praise you, thank you, God. Whenever you admire beauty, whenever you see wisdom or skill or insight or ability or engineering, architecture, creativity, right? Like, connect the dots upwards to God. Do you realize that like the very best of humankind, right? is just the palest, most dim reflection, imperfect shadow of God. Are you see something that is amazing to you, some skyscraper or whatever it is, right? I mean, that's just a, a pile of toothpicks next to the Empire State Building when you think of it in God. You know, we're drawing stick figures next to the Mona Lisa. Let it, let it connect the dots, point it upwards to God. Everything, everything. Have you... The the older I get and the more I learn and experience life, the more I see that. Pick an object in the room. But this wood, where did this wood come from? Who planted the tree? Who cut it down so skillfully in the butcher block deal here and it's routed out nice and smooth and sanded down? Just hundreds of thousands of man hours of labor to develop the technology to be able to do this and where did the carbon come from from the wood anyway who invented that how did that get here right like billions of years ago billions of years ago a bunch of hydrogen in a big cloud came together by gravity and formed the star, and there was fusion going on, and eventually that ran out, and it collapsed on itself and its gravity, and it created all these heavier elements, like carbon and gold and copper and all this, and then it exploded in a supernova and scattered the stuff all over the universe, and some of that came to Earth and was formed here, and it's here, now. And who invented that? Who thought of that? Whose creation is that? It's God's, It's it's staggering. How can you, just look up at the Milky Way. 200 to 400 billion stars, billion in one galaxy. How many atoms and electrons are in there? Good gravy, think about it. That's just this wood. What about the copper? Man alive, think about our speech. Do you know what's happening right now as I speak to you? Goodness gracious, millions of electrical impulses in my brain are firing off in perfect coordination and causing this unassailably complicated chemical reaction to happen and all these little cells in my muscles To cause my breathing and my vocal cords and my tongue and my lips to form sounds, vibrations in the air that are wiggling your eardrums and causing little sensors and other electrical impulses to go into your head and you understand me. (laughs) And it's happening like this just boom every day, all the time. God thought of that. He's the engineer. Does your jaw drop in awe and that's just a piece? That's just me, broken, fallen me? And it's amazing. People devote a lifetime of study just to mitochondria. Your head should explode. Praise the Lord. Connect the dots. You know, Franz Joseph Haydn was this famous composer in the late 18th century, and one of Haydn's compositions is called The Creation, and it documents the seven days of creation that's found in Genesis. And on one performance of this, when he was very old at the end of his life, the orchestra played it in Vienna Music Hall, and the audience was just raptured by this and stood up and started applauding Haydn for this just beautiful work that was so beautifully performed. And he struggled, he stood up, a motion for the crowd to be quiet. And he pointed to heaven and he said, no, no, not from me, but from thence comes all. From God, from thence comes all. But there's one more problem we gotta deal with. Okay, sure, Marcioni, I can worship when I'm standing on a mountaintop. I can worship when I contemplate, you know, organic chemistry or whatever. But what about when I'm in a hospital bed? What about the portions of our lives when we aren't confronted with God's goodness and beauty and instead we experience the privation of it? We see pain, we see hurt, hunger, injustice. We see a barren wasteland instead of a verdant forest. Well, look again at what Zechariah does in the text. If you reread 68 through 75 in this chapter, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's freed us from our enemies. He's using the past tense. Has Zechariah experienced any of these things? Has he been rescued from his enemies? Are the people saved yet? Is everybody serving God without fear in Jerusalem? No. I mean, Zechariah is still squarely in the midst of an occupied nation. These tyrannical Romans are still in power. But he's worshiping forward, for lack of a better term. He's seen seen a glimpse of what is to come. He's experienced God's faithfulness in the present and his promise to give him a son. And he worships in anticipation of what is to come. And we can do the same thing. When we're sick, we can praise God that we won't always be sick. There's coming a day when every sickness, every disease will be gone, will be set right. Find any aberration, any loss of what is good, and you can worship forward to how it will be one day. Maybe in your lifetime. Maybe not, but God will do it. And that's our hope. That's our hope in Christ as sons and daughters of God. And it's a guarantee. It's, it's going to happen. We are saved to worship God. So let's do that today and every day hereafter. Let's connect the dots. We're saved to worship God. That's the point of all of this. And so as we respond, as the, the team comes up and we, we sing in worship, where are you? Maybe you're in that place where you're not perceiving beauty and goodness around you. And you need to worship forward. You need faith in God's faithfulness that you see. You need to recall his past work in your life. Remember his goodness. Remember that he's for you. Remember that he never reneges on a promise and worship forward. Or maybe you're, you're at that place, you look at your, your wife or your daughter, or your son or this church family or look forward to Christmas or whatever it is and you just praise God, thank him for it. It came from him. He did it to point him, so you could ultimately delight and find satisfaction and joy in our gracious, gracious Heavenly Father. So pray with me. Father, thank you that you are so good, and you are amazing, God, in every way, and we will never, ever tire of singing your praise. When we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Everything we delight in, Lord God, would you show us that it's you, that it's you trying to reach us? Would we find satisfaction and delight in you, God, because you are worthy, Lord God. We love you. Cement these things into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name.